0: Matthew Cruz. I'm one of the pastors in the life of our church. It's been 41 days since I have preached Christ to his people gathered at Seven Mile Road. So it might get a little bit loud in here today. In the meantime, just so that you're aware, uh, I was diagnosed with melanoma, which is the worst kind of skin cancer in this 40-day fast of preaching for me. And a few weeks ago, they went in and cut a circle in my head down to the fat They pulled the cancer out, they threw it away, they sewed me up. Looks way better today than it did two weeks ago. Now there's just a nice little ramp in my head so the kids can ride their matchbox cars and get some air (laughs) off of it right there. Uh, But I'm really thankful for the way that you guys have loved me and us through that. God taught me a lot, corrected me a lot. He's just a good father. But I'm really glad to still be standing here, hopefully for another 30 years yelling at you guys. Um, and to do this. This is the time in our liturgy where we fully turn our attention to the preached Word of God and look for God by His Spirit through a a servant of His to speak with clarity and power. So we're not really listening for my words here, but for for what God would have for us. Over the last five weeks, the different uh, pastors in the life of our church have been preaching on this theme up here the promise of a praying life, and, and what keeps us out from it. I'm going to continue that theme with you today, um, and I'm going to deal specifically on what holds us back from living and praying missionally. What holds us back from longing for the salvation of our neighbors and our circles and these cities, and what holds us back from praying Hard that God would act in in grace and save many. This topic is of super importance to the life of our church right now because what we are doing in effect this September is being about the missional work of seeing three seven mile road church communities thriving. Over the course of 10 years, we filled up a space down in Malden, and the way that we have resolved that is by saying, We're not gonna look to become a mega church. We are going to plant communities in different cities just north of Boston. And so we took a full room and we cut it in half and then we're gonna take about half of you and send you up to Wakefield in September and you're already about that work. We need to begin again to live and to pray missionally for this thing to work. I hope that you're with me on this whole thing Don't ever fade from the fact that as Jesus' church, we are called by God not only to work hard with and to pray hard for those who are among us. We do that as the church, but we are also supposed to work hard and pray hard for those who have not yet been saved by grace. That's what we mean when we say that we are building a gospel-centered community that is living on mission. Can't fade from this. Let me just give you an example of what it should look and feel like. Have you guys ever watched the Food Network? All right, we went on vacation last week, and the house that we rented had cable. Hello. This was new for the Cruz family. And so in great love for Grace, every night at the end of the night, we would watch the Food Network. This is like crack for her, an immediate addiction, Soul Care Girls, she needs an intervention this week. I know all the shows right now, there's Cupcake Wars, there's Restaurant Impossible, there's Chopped, there's the great American food truck race. Every show on the Food Network is missional. It's about cooks on mission. So they set up a competition or a challenge or a deadline and everyone is working super hard to get the meal done, to get the restaurant renovated, to get the menu set up. When you watch these shows, what do you notice? Nobody is playing. Everyone is fully engaged in this work. They're sweating and they're shouting and they're running and they're cooking. This one lady cut off a third of her ring finger, and she just bandaged it and kept going. Why would she do that, cooking (laughs) right-handed, splashing stuff, burning her skin? She was a mess after this show. She was on a mission. She was not going to be distracted from what she was called to do. Seven Mile Road, this is what it needs to feel like for us to faithfully be Jesus' people. We have a job to do. We are called to believe and to embody and also to announce the gospel toward the conversion of our souls and the conversion of souls just north of Boston toward seeing many from our tribe repent of their sin, put their faith in Jesus, find life in his name, and live in obedience to his commands. We should be after that like the lady that cut her finger, devoted and singular and purposed in all that we do. Okay, now the list of things that holds us back from being that way is endless. It's like a mile long. We could preach an entire sermon series called A Mission to Life and What Holds Us Back. With you guys who I love today, I just want to deal with two of those obstacles. We've got a beautiful text that helps us to deal with both of them. Let me state the fences and then we'll hit the text and we'll see if God's words to us can help us to kick these fences down and catapult us together into a a new life of living and praying missionally. Fence one is a heart issue. We really don't work hard or pray hard for the unsaved to be saved because we really don't long for their salvation. This happens with Christians and with churches all the time. We, in here, don't really care about them. Out there. Sometimes we're nasty about it. We've just seen our culture, people reject and slander and dishonor Christ, and it angers us and infuriates us, and like we really don't care what happens to them. You know, it just doesn't matter to us, and our heart grows really hard. Sometimes we just get passive and apathetic. I got too much going on. This isn't my concern. I'm not really worried about it. I'm not longing on a daily basis for these folks to come to know Jesus. I'm apathetic. Have you ever been there? Either way, whether you really have an issue with sinners and you don't want to see them saved, or you're just lazy and you could care less, if you are not fired up about something, you are not going to dedicate yourself to prayer about it. So there's that fence that gets in the way, and it's an issue with your heart with my heart. Then there's a second fence. It's not a head issue. It's, I mean, it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue. It's actually a theological issue that just jams us up when we go to pray for salvation. We don't work really hard or pray really hard for the unsaved to be saved because we get a hold of the wrong end of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election. And we think, Hey, if the scriptures teach that God has already decreed who is going to be saved, why should I bother praying about it? If it's already determined, why would I waste my breath? I'll do the work of evangelism. I'll be a part of a church plant. I'll preach the gospel. But I'm not going to bother praying about it since the verdict is already in on the salvation issue. God has already decided what he's going to do. My prayers aren't going to change or affect anything. Okay, can you feel how these two fences can hold us back from really fervently living and praying missionally? I don't do it because I don't long for them to be saved. And I don't do it because it just doesn't make sense to me to pray that someone would be <laughs> saved when election is a doctrine of the scriptures. Okay. Now, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, which you guys haven't heard yet, is going to kick both of those fences down. But before we get there, let me deal with the text that we have heard so far today and let it set the stage. The book of Romans chapter 9 is one of the most intense texts of scripture in your Bible. Has anyone in this church not called me at 2 in the morning going, Matt, I'm reading Romans 9 here. God hated Esau for no good reason. What's going on? You got to help me. All right, there's a lot going on here in this text of scripture. We're just going to deal with some of it to set the stage for what we're trying to do. Throughout this letter written to Roman Christians, Jesus' apostle Paul has been raving about the gospel. But there is a problem. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. And he has accomplished redemption for his people. But lots and lots and lots and lots of Jews have heard the gospel and not believed it. Their Messiah has come to him and they have rejected him. And they have rejected him really hard. Especially when the words came from Paul's mouth. These are Paul's people, his countrymen, his tribe. And they have chosen to hold on to sin and unbelief and self-righteousness. And they have done it, man, with their fists flying. And in Paul's case, they have done it with stones flying at his head. They want him dead. Many of them want nothing to do with Paul or Jesus or his gospel. And so the question, one of the questions that Paul's answering in our text is, what do you do with this? Why why is this happening? And so he gives an explanation for why so many Jews had not taken hold of salvation by faith in the gospel. And part of what he does is he goes to the doctrine of election. And he says, here's what's going on. Unless the Father chooses to extend mercy or saving grace to a person, they are not going to turn and believe and be saved it doesn't matter if their physical descent is from the bloodlines of the people of Israel. Salvation does not come because you were born into the right family, does not come because you have done enough of the right things, does not come because you were the right gender or the right age or the right ethnicity, does not come because you had the right upbringing or the right genes. Salvation comes through the undeserved unmerited, unconditional, free grace of God, and it is purely up to the good pleasure of God who will receive that grace. Then Paul gives us some examples. Matt read this before. He goes, hey, think of Abraham. He had sons, plural, but it was only Isaac that was chosen by God. Verse 7, God decreed that it was through Isaac That your offspring will be named. Why Isaac, but not Ishmael? God's decree. Then he gives another example. He says, Hey, think about Rebecca. She had two sons, they were both in her her womb at the same time. And before they were even born, God decreed the younger will be served, Uh, the older will serve the younger. Why Jacob? and not Esau. Because salvation is not about human striving, or good works, or right living, or law keeping. Salvation is of God, from God, through God, to God, by God, for the glory of God. It is purely by His grace that anybody is saved. And he freely chooses who will receive that grace. It's good. It should get quiet in here right now. Now, our immediate reaction is what? Unfair. Unjust. This guy talking about up here. And we get really loud, and we start acting as, as if we can start accusing God. But Paul says what? He gets real loud himself. He says, don't you ever say that by no means, exclamation point. And he teaches us that God always gives everyone justice. He is never unjust. That what every sinner deserves for the countless ways, countless ways, mountain of ways, that they have sinned repeatedly over and over again against the glorious and good and holy God who created them in love and is worthy of all honor and all praise and all obedience. What justice demands is judgment. The biblical word is wrath on sin. Paul says, if God doesn't save a single sinner, that would be perfectly just and not one sinner would have a complaint on their lips. None of us. And he puts forth Pharaoh as an example. He says, Pharaoh was treated perfectly, fairly by God. If God chose to keep Pharaoh's heart, heart, and heart, heart, and allow Pharaoh to continue in his sin, God was not being unjust by not choosing to show mercy to Pharaoh. Pharaoh got what he deserved, <coughs> And nothing less than that, if that happened with all of us, God would remain fully just. But also, amazingly, marvelously, almost incomprehensibly to us, God has chosen not only to exercise just wrath all the time, but also to extend mercy and grace to many. Now, he doesn't have to do it to all to remain just. It's Paul's point. He could have shown mercy to just one person, five, ten, five hundred, five hundred, whatever number he wanted. Justice and mercy are different categories. Being merciful does not mean that showing justice becomes unjust. But God, in his grace, because he is abounding in love, has chosen to show mercy to many, to many. And he does it through what we have coined unconditional election. In his sovereignty, he has declared those who will be saved. And so Paul asks this question. This is the one that we read together. He says, hey, what if God, desiring to show his wrath or his justice and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? You feel that? He has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath who have been prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called and that not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. What is our answer, supposed to be to that question that Paul poses, what if God did that? We're supposed to go, oh, that would be amazing for him to show so much mercy to so many undeserving sinners at the cost of the life of his son. Whoa, and I am so glad that I have received that grace and placed my faith in Christ. See, the doctrine of election is supposed to be a great comfort, a great assurance to the believer. It is in this doctrine where grace finally has its power, and God finally has all of the glory. Got that? We can talk more through that. Now, having written this chapter, what might we expect Paul to begin the next chapter with? Well, if you get a hold of the wrong end of the doctrine of election, you're going to have some trouble. So what we have so far here is that all these Jews who have rejected Paul and Jesus and the gospel, and you have this doctrine of election that insists that this has happened because God has already decreed who will and who will not be saved. Now, if you put those things together wrongly, you might expect something like this to come next. Romans chapter 10, the first verse in your Bible. Brothers, my heart could care less about these punk Jews who have rejected Jesus. And I am certainly not praying for them or for anyone else to be saved because like I just told you, God has already decreed who will be saved and so there's really no point in praying about it. But that's not what we get, is it? Some of you super Christians who brought your Bible today, you're like, hold on, Romans 10? Is there a second book of Romans? Instead, we get this. Check it out. It's amazing. If I fall down, pick me up. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them Is that they may be saved. that is some beautiful Holy Spirit inspired text of scripture right there. How in the world did he get there? Okay, we need to know. Because we need to get there. His heart was for them. And he was praying for their salvation. In one verse, he kicks down both of these fences. How does he do it? Here's how. He does not confuse the sovereign decrees of God with the revealed desires of God. He knows that when it comes to living the gospel life and living and praying missionally, it is not our job to worry about the mysteries of the hidden will of God. It's our job to work and to pray hard in line with the revealed will of God. Here's what the scripture has to say about God's desires for men and women when it comes to salvation. And we want to line up with these desires. Things like 1 Timothy, he longs for all men to be saved things like all of the Psalms and the prophets and the book of Acts. He intends for, longs for, the nations to flock to the cross of Christ and receive him as their king. Ezekiel, that he does not rejoice in the death of anyone. Why won't you turn and be saved? John, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son That whoever, whoever, whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. No, God has not decreed that all would repent and believe and receive that life. But it is not our job to worry about his decrees. Our job is to do what he's commanded us to do in line with what he has shown us He longs to see happen in a real sense, to take the gospel to all nations and to work and pray hard for their salvation. That's why Paul can actually say with a straight face, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. This is why in the Acts 29 church planning network, we say, we pray like Arminians, but we sleep like Calvinists. If you don't know what those two things are, don't worry about it. Here's what it means. We rest in the doctrine of unconditional election. That salvation is from God alone. And that what he has predestined in love will come to pass because he governs all things. Give me a pillow and I'm going to sleep. I'm resting in that. But we labor hard to see men and women come to that salvation because God's command to us is that we would be means for accomplishing his decrees. Do you see how we get the doctrine of election completely backwards? It doesn't work when you hold it the wrong way. We were down on vacation playing some serious wiffle ball. Everybody's hitting home runs over the house. But we got a three-year-old. So, you know, you want to give her one of those bats that starts skinny and then just gets gigantic. You know those? And what does every three-year-old do when you give them that bat? Okay, first they eat it, chew on it for a little while. But then, inevitably, they grab the fat end and they're like, you know, standing on top of the plate. Is that going to work? You got to take that bat and turn it. And when you do now what? Oh, man, now this thing is going to work. It's the same way with the doctrine of election. You might have come in here hanging on the wrong end of this, and it's been immobilizing you from prayer. Far from being a fence that gets in the way of us loving our neighbor and praying for their salvation. The doctrine of election is where all the passion and all the energy and all the fire and all the hope comes from in church planting and in preaching and in prayer. Guys, God has decreed to save and he has chosen for preaching and for prayer to be the means by which he will accomplish his decrees. Far from fencing us out from missional praying, the love of God for sinners and his intent to save many should invigorate us When we work and we pray for the salvation of the world, of our tribe, we are working and praying in line with the will of God. That's why Paul can say, even though they have not yet responded, my heart longs for them to be saved. And even though God is sovereign over salvation, my lips pray that they would be saved. All right, let me give you two stories just to help bring this home. We do tell stories at Seth We don't just yell at you. These are actually two John stories. The first is about John Knox. John Knox was a fiery Protestant preacher in the 1500s. You know Justin's little goatee thing he's trying to grow John Knox would make that thing look like whiskers on a 12-year-old boy. This thing was like down there. He was a part of the Reformation in England, Scotland, and on the continent. But Scotland was his people. And John Knox's famous prayer for Scotland sounded just like Romans 10.1. He shortened it so he could fit it on a bumper sticker and a t-shirt and a coffee mug, but this was it. Give me Scotland or I die. Can you feel it in there? His heart's desire was for Scotland, for his people, for his tribe. And he prayed for it. He didn't say, Hey, whatever happens to the people of Scotland, I don't really care. A lot of them are still holding on to works righteousness. I'm not really going to pray for them. And he didn't say, whatever happens in Scotland is going to happen in Scotland, so you just do whatever you decreed. No. He said, you've got to give me Scotland. I long for it. I ask for it. I'll die if you don't bring salvation. For years he preached Christ hard like that, and he prayed hard like that. And God used his preaching and his praying to save many. In 1559, old school, he wrote these words. God did so multiply our number that it appeared as if men rained from the clouds. This is a man who wrote an entire treatise about that thick on predestination, but it did not hold him back from working hard and loving hard and praying hard. What if we prayed like that? All right, second story, another John's story. This is one about our, our boy, this is our story, one of our stories, our boy John Frederick. For three long years, and they were really long years, trust me on this one. We were in relationship with this guy, John. And as a people, we gave ourselves over to loving him and to gospeling him and to praying hard for him. There's a bunch of times when we were tempted to turn our hearts off and just be like, I'm done here. One time I had told everybody, hey, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. We had this wrong. Jesus is Lord And that week when we were in his kitchen and I was teaching him the three chords for whatever song we were going to sing, in the old days we only did three chords, that was it, and he says to me, every knee's going to bow, I doubt that, I don't think that's going to happen, and I remember wanting to jump over the kitchen table and just start pounding on this kid. My heart wanted to get like our heart gets, right? Forget him. Either be angry at him or just passive about it, just let him, whatever, But we didn't, we held on as a church in our heart. We continued to love. We can honestly say that our heart's desire and our prayer for this kid is that he would be saved. I remember praying, God, you got to either give him a record deal and get him out of here, or you gotta save him. You gotta convert him. You gotta do the work that I can't do, that only you can do. And you know what God and his grace did? He used our preaching and he used our preaching. And he used our praying to save him. He was in a van down at a Barnes & Noble on tour in Georgia and I believe the Holy Spirit actually opened the passenger door and sat down and converted him in that car. I just know because he called me at 10.30 and 10.30 for me I've been asleep for like two hours by then to tell me that Jesus had saved him. Did our praying change the decree of God? No. God loved John, redemptively from before there was time. He was his. John's salvation was not because of our praying or our preaching or our loving. Salvation is all of God. But did God in his grace use our loving and our preaching and our praying as a means toward that man's salvation? Yes. And we have other stories like that. I wish I had more from you. But the truth is, My heart struggles to be resilient and to love people like we were able to do in that situation. My heart is not there, especially in Melrose. This has been super hard for me to say, God, you got to turn my heart to loving people with 1.3 kids and a dog who don't need you. Change my heart because they do desperately need you. And I don't know if there's anyone else that I can say that I prayed that hard for, I and mean, I prayed this kid hard. What if we loved, we worked, we prayed with that fire, with that fervor for the people that God is sending us to? All right, let me finish this with two simple questions of application. You you know what they're gonna be. Here we go. One, is it, is it your heart's desire? That the people that God has connected you to, that your tribe, your neighborhood, your circles would be saved. Is your heart there? And two, are you praying fervently that God would save? Here's what you can do this week. Would love to see you do this as an individual, as a family, if you've got a family, and definitely. In a smaller community. And we'll be doing this over this season. What if we took this text of scripture. And we made it ours. We take the text this week. And we fill in the pronoun them. With names of people. That God might use us. To bring to life. So just say father. My heart's desire. And my prayer for. Fill in the blank. For Melrose. Melrose for Malden, for Wakefield, is that they might be saved. What if we prayed that way? I try and do this on Fridays. Father, my, my heart's desire and my prayer for Muhammad Kafif and Muhammad Brahimi, these two men that Kevin is loving and could plant an unbelievable Jesus-honoring church among Moroccans, that they would be saved I'm asking God for it. I don't know if God's decreed for them to be saved. It's not my job to know. My heart is for these men and their salvation. Father, I pray for my heart's desire and my prayer for Jim and Julie across the street and the new couple that just moved in and the dad whose kids play baseball with Matthew and the new widow who works outside the office from me and whatever other names are within reach of you, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is that they may be saved. And Then we go and love these people. We get in relationship with them. And we gospel them as the Holy Spirit gives opportunity. I don't mean go kick in their door today with Romans 9 and start yelling about Pharaoh. I mean love them and as the opportunity comes. Why? God saves, and he may be intending for your prayer and your preaching to save them, gospel them, and be in prayer about it. Now, maybe God will take all of this work that we're doing, and he will use it for his eternal decree of hardening, and the story of Seven Mile Road will be some salvation and a whole lot of Pharaoh going on. Is that all right? Yes. The results are not in our hands. They're in God's hands. We are called to love and declare and pray. But you know our Father. You know the breadth and the depth of his love. You know what he's like. You know that he intends for communities like this to be birthed. Where somebody would finally start loving the lost. And being honest with them about their sin. And clear with them about Jesus. And pray for their Salvation. Malden and Melrose and Wakefield can fill up in six months if you and I and our communities would be serious about loving with our hearts and praying with our lips that salvation would come to many. I'm preaching to your conscience today. I'm not trying to make you guilty that you don't pray enough. I'm trying to prick you to change, to say, God, if if we began to love we begin to pray the work that you have intended to do from before time. We could see it with our eyes. Wouldn't that be something worth being all Food Network about, being serious about? It would. Let's ask God for it. Let's not stop asking him for it. Father, you've got to change our hearts. We don't care about people the way that we should. Change us, help us to see them with your eyes. Bring our desires in line with yours. We should really want all men to be saved. Give us that heart. And forgive us for getting the wrong end of this beautiful doctrine of election and giving up because we're trying to mine your your decrees. No. No. Help us to pray hard, hard. Because you intend to use our prayer to answer it, to see salvation come. And we freely confess that the joy of all of this and the power of all of this and the hope of all of this is that it's about you. It's got nothing to do with us. It's about you and your love for many and your glory being known. Would you come do something crazy in the next 10 years in the life of these churches? Father, there's church planners in this room. There's Joey and there's others. I pray that you would begin to break them personally and turn their hearts to the tribe that you've called them to, that they would begin praying now for a harvest of salvation. And there's boys and girls and men and women in this room right now who are connected to many. I pray that the way that Paul loved the Jews and John Knox loved Scotland And Seven Mile Road loved John Frederick. I pray that everybody in here would start to love somebody like that. My heart's desire, my prayer for them is that they may be saved. Hear my prayer and answer. Answer, I pray.